This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is the second recording of Season 2, WealthFest, the weekly Bull and Bear. As per usual, I'll kind of talk about what we will be addressing throughout today's podcast and then start us off with some numbers. So we're really today going to be going through the jobs report, earnings, the idea of average inflation targeting from the Fed, um, the SAM indicator, which is a new economic indicator used to gauge recession risk, global manufacturing, we'll talk a little about durable goods, some countries are moving away from the U.S. dollar, and then we'll kind of add our discussion today around issues pertaining to the British snap election and Brexit in general. So the market yesterday which was Monday. Uh, we're recording on Tuesday. So we're talking about November 4th. Dow was once up again, record highs, was up nearly 18% on the year. So we were looking at some big numbers from Apple. So over the last, um, since the last uh, rally, they've gone up 25%. Then you had big numbers from Intel, JP Morgan Chase, and United Technologies. They're all up at least 10%. And we saw the S&P go up 11.36 points, so it ended the day at 3,078. And then the 10-year Treasury was virtually unchanged at 1.781%. And I should mention that these numbers just came out today, but it was just reported that the U.S. trade deficit fell to $52.5 billion, which is the lowest since April, largely due to we're running a petroleum surplus and also some optimism based on the trade front. Uh, but with those numbers and um, those you know, stock market indicators addressed, I'd like to talk to Grant and see what his thoughts are on why we've seen such a rally and why we're against, once again breaking record highs. Yeah, well, the S&P risen a little over 4% over the past month, extending gains for the year just above 22%. So some steady growth there. I think there's three main things to look at there. We saw that the Fed decreased the uh, the rate by 25 basis point last week. So that will uh, have consumers and, and investors thinking that the, the Fed's going to continue to uh, to continue to watch that. Also, we saw the jobs report on Friday come out looking a little more robust, beating expectations. Um, so I'm sure we'll get into that shortly. But then lastly, I think that as we're continuing in Q3 earnings season, we're seeing that the majority of companies are actually beating beating the earnings expectations, um, even though earnings are still down. But you know, beating beating expectations usually is a is a good signal for for investors. Yeah, let's get into those two issues sequentially: uh, the jobs report and how we have had a bearish outlook on corporate earnings that we're we're beating some of those outlooks. So, starting with the jobs report, and you know, if you were ever listened to this podcast when Tim was on. Uh, you know how much you hated the non-farm payroll data, but <laughs> unfortunately, this is kind of, you know, it is what we talk about, and it's it's a huge indicator. So when we're looking at what happened in October, employment grew by seasonally adjusted 128,000 jobs. Um, so the unemployment rate has ticked up from a 50-year low uh, to 3.6%, um, and wage growth remained pretty steady, up 3% from, from last year. Uh, but in part of the reason why the unemployment rate ticked up, I should add, is that more people have joined the labor force, uh, so they're now participating. So that number in of itself can can be 
uh, interpreted to be a good thing. Grant, what do we think about the most recent jobs report? Well, I think uh, I think a big a big thing to look at is now that the the strike for GM plants now uh, now is over, so that should actually I- increase the number there. I also think we're seeing continuing steady growth in the healthcare and social ser- social services. You know, they added just over thirty four thousand jobs in October. Um, so, you know, I think the, the the healthcare space is still growing. Also, the, the number of Americans that are looking for work or searching for work also rose and was the highest since August 2013, hinting that the labor market is actually drawing in more Americans, which is always a good sign. Um, so those would be the main things that I would look at. Yeah. And, and what, what's interesting, like we, we mentioned GM, they had a 40-day strike. So that kind of suppressed what could be an even more optimistic outlook. I remember in August... Kind of those numbers were on the opposite end. They were inflated because because we had hired so many census workers. So it's always important when you're looking at a month to month basis to kind of find some of the weird external factors that you know kind of have served as an anomaly. Whether it be we're hiring census workers or whether it be there's a massive strike, um, with, you know, at a company like General Motors. Well, and if you also look, you know, last year wages accelerated a little bit, growing at about three percent versus now we're seeing wages kind of flatten out a little bit. And so that may be because businesses are reluctant to, to boost wages, to, to poach workers from other, other competitors and maybe turning to other benefits um, as well. So that's something to look out for in the next jobs report. Right. So while 3% is a, is a strong number uh, for sure, we should add that in terms of time periods when unemployment is this low, you typically see much higher wage growth, and and as Grant alluded to, a lot of this has has gone to benefits. Let's get into kind of the bearish outlook on corporate earnings. So we have more than seventy percent of S and P five country hundred companies have reported their earnings um, from July to September, and we should mention that this is actually the third straight quarter of decline, but the decline's been quite a bit less than the analysts had anticipated. Uh, the third quarter earnings have declined about 2.7%. But, you know, when we're looking at a lot of the numbers since since the middle of 2016, but since um, a lot of the numbers indicated that it'd be a 4.1% drop. So people have kind of seen that as a buying sign. Yeah, well, typically you see about three quarters of S&P 500 companies beat expectations. And a big reason for that is companies favor conservative estimates. So when they beat them, the stock may rally. And so analysts really follow suit. I think the, the the key takeaway is is we're still seeing year over year decreasing in earnings. Um, the S and P's rallied even even despite this, in that you know beating low expectations really shouldn't be that big of a buy signal in my in my in my opinion. So you know we're looking at okay so lackluster earnings but significantly less luck or like significantly not as bad earnings as we anticipated. We're still looking at a very strong um, jobs economy. And yet, you know, when we're talking about what is a gradual global slowdown, we got to make sure that the Fed has all the tools it needs in order to accommodate the next recession when that happens, whether it be um, 12 months or whether that be three years. Uh, it's usually the kind of been the survey questions, one to three years. They've been asking a lot of people on the street. But A new paper just came out talking specifically about average inflation targeting. So functionally, what it is, is, you know, the Fed has always had a goal of trying to keep inflation to 2%. 
and any readings above and below we're looking at are equally undesirable. Under average inflation targeting, the Fed instead sets an average level for inflation over a given period. If it falls short of that goal, it would be allowed to overshoot the target uh, for enough time to hit its average path. Um, so this report was kind of, it really said that it had a lot of pitfalls on average inflation targeting. Uh, Grant, what do you think about it? And what do you think, uh, how feasible is it as a Fed policy moving forward? Well, I think it's an interesting idea um, because of where the Fed finds itself in a post-financial crisis world. Um, you know, the main tool that has been used in the past has been, you know, cutting the overnight Fed funds rate, um, which right now is still, you know, at all times low. So what what is the Fed going to be able to do if another recession hits? So I think that this is uh, maybe a tool that they can use. Uh, also, you know, using the balance sheet in terms of asset buying, maybe something else. But I think that where the Fed sees itself right now, they have less space to cut cut rates when, when trouble arises. So this may be a tool that can be used moving forward to, to increase inflation. Right. I mean, and of course, the last thing we want to do is get into an inflation and we're already posting negative interest rates. I mean, that's right. potentially disastrous. And as a result of these decline rates, we've actually seen kind of an increased uh, dividend stock rally. So you tell the, the utilities select sector um, fund has risen 8.5% during the past six months, uh, which is relative to a 3% rise for the S&P 500, for example. So we've seen um, the utilities ETF has climbed 20.8% so far this year, you know, as compared to um, a relative gain of, you know, of the S&P. So we see increased movements towards dividend paying stocks, and they've been performing pretty well as people are chasing yield, right? Right. Well, I think the the Fed is forcing more income investors into the stock market, right? Because if they're going to continue to cut cut interest rates, the the bond yields aren't as high. And so, I mean, if you think about dividend paying stocks, generally they usually have a lower PE ratio because they they, they don't have the same growth. Um, so now with with a flood of people buying these, that the price is the demand is going up, and therefore the price rising. So now we're actually seeing you know PE ratios growing faster than non-dividend paying stocks, which is not the norm. Right. Yeah. I mean, in fact, you've seen um, you know price per earnings on on these utility like dividend paying at you know twenty two point eight roughly. In other words, price per earnings ratio on the S and P five hundred you know is as of you know the other day was nineteen point five, so a little bit frothier. Uh, let's let's get into all right. We've talked about how jobs are still good, but we're in the midst of a slowing economy, and you know the Fed's discussing different models about you know what to do in order to you know placate placate recession risks and to hit its inflation target. Let's talk about a new thing called the SOM rule, or. Well, rel- not new, but, you know, relatively new. And I'd say in terms of chatter, it was added to uh, St. Louis's Fed data set not too long ago. But Claudia Som has created this indicator. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about it, Grant, how it works. And actually, when we backdated, how effective it's been since the 1970s. Yeah, so effectively, I, I mean, one of my favorite things is, is how she discovered it and how they described that she was just messing around with an Excel, a big Excel spreadsheet on her on her couch and i can't imagine that uh she just was able to stumble upon this but 
Yeah, just drinking coffee, petting her cat, you know, it seems like it was a little bit more in depth than that. Yeah. So pretty much what it's done in, uh, since 1970 is it has no false positives and it, it lets you know when a recession has started. Um, so it's not a, a, a predictor, but it lets you know when it's, when it's started and therefore we, the Fed can, can use tools to, to add stimulus. So therefore, instead of having a recession that goes on for many months, it is able to actually, um, you know, let you know when it's happening and therefore stimulus can be added quickly and therefore reduce the the length of a recession. And um, so, yeah, it would be completely effective as of the 1970s. And, and doesn't it then entail that, I mean, I guess the general principle is that if you call a recession earlier, you can get the stimulus out early as opposed to realizing eight to 12 months down the road that you're in a recession and, and people are already starting to hurt. Right, exactly. And, and so what she's really looking for is using the, the unemployment rate um, to, to, to be able to uh, ident- identify that. Yeah, and I guess one last point on this is, you know, we've had a lot of metrics over the last 30, 40 some odd years, whether it be uh, the Friedman rule or the, the Phillips curve, which, you know, have all worked in different environments, but then have also fallen in different environments. So uh, the SOM rule may eventually have some pitfalls, but right now when we're backdating into the 70s, it's been a completely effective um, methodology of, of weighing what a recession is. Yeah, and so what she's really looking at is if the unemployment rate over the last three months has ri- risen half a percentage point more um, than the previous year. And so if, if that actually rises more than half a percentage point, then the economy is a recession. Yeah, and I think I saw some numbers. So if this is over the 12-month period, but... Since since three point six three point seven is so unnaturally low that over the next couple of years, if it gets in fact you know to mid fours, that could be a normal number, and not even affect GDP. So we're lo- really looking at that twelve month period uh, for that to happen, right? Correct. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into you know global manufacturing, and you know we mentioned a couple months ago when we dropped sub fifty, that is what's considered a manufacturing contraction, the manufacturing recession. Um, so the factory, so we declined again in October for the th- third straight month, but at a slower pace than September. Um, maybe some of that was the easing on the, some of the trade talks, and we've got a little bit more trade exposure. But right now, the ISM uh, readings are um, put us at 47.8. And um, so, yeah, still in contraction there. Yeah, so I think that it's... Uh it's a number of factors. We're seeing decline activity in Vietnam, Japan, Indonesia, Taiwan. Uh, the only one Asian manufacturing sector that grow was India, but that was still at a, a slower rate than the previous month. Uh, when we look at the comments from the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, he said one of the main factors behind the decision to cut interest rates last uh, last week was because of the, the manufacturing data that's coming out of the United States. With GM on strike, but now uh, you know that impacted the the numbers last month as well as the uncertainty around Boeing. Um, so that may also still play a, a role in the in the global manufacturing numbers. Right, right, and I, and I should I should mention I just read September's numbers of forty seven point eight, but uh, October's came in at uh, forty eight point three. Uh, and and in top of that, we've seen U.S. durable good orders fall uh, in September. Those numbers reported. Um, you know, October 20-something odd. So uh, we'll imagine we'll get some new numbers later here on in the month. But that seems to indicate a decline in investment from companies 
um, and it's been one of the larger setbacks we've had in, in a little bit. Yeah, so I, I think this points to the, the two factors that I was just talking about as well, because we saw commercial aircraft demand fall by 11.8% in September. Um, and then we also saw auto production fall by about almost 2% and based on, uh, you know, GM strike. So I think that those are, those are definitely impacting the durable goods numbers. Let's, let's get into a conversation about the dollar. So, I mean, the dollar usually rises in times of economic, you know, fluctuations like we, we've just mentioned, whether we're talking about trade or, or manufacturing crisis and, and everything else. Uh, but there has definitely been a uh, curbing of enthusiasm for different countries. And when we're talking about Europe, that's in particular with them wanting to sustain business relationships with Iran. Um, obviously, that was a big political uh, divergence between when we left the Iran nuclear deal between what we wanted to do and, and, and what Europe wanted to do. So, you know, when you're using U.S. dollars, then you're subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And that's one thing that the Europeans certainly don't want to do if they want to pursue economic uh, relations with Iran, um, and nor do the Chinese for that matter. So I guess one of the big, big numbers to look at is how much of uh, petrol and, uh, is, is, is priced in dollars. And right now that's about 90%. But if we see more of that move to the yuan or, or the Chinese currency or also known as the renminbi, then, then we might be seeing some uh, cracking in enthusiasm of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Right. I mean, I think the last thing that a European businessman wants to do is get off a plane in the United States and, and get arrested because of their current, current business with Iran. So, you know, China, Russia, and the European Union are all major players in the in the global space. And if all of them decide that they no longer want to put their safe money in, in green back with the dollar, then we may see a lot of shifts away from that. And then I think one of the biggest things to look for is, you know, what is you mentioned, what is the next currency that they move into? And then if uh, if we're thinking about the second largest economy in China and someone that we're constantly, you know, I would say in battle with now for the number one spot. Uh, if we see a lot of movement into the in the Chinese currency, that could play a, a big factor in the U.S. dollar moving forward. In terms of China, um, I guess we got some good news on that front. Is where we want to get some ink signed on the new deal. Uh, location was put up in the air recently, so they're looking at new locations. But it seems that you know between. Chinese Premier Li, and then, you know, we got National Security Advisor Rob O'Brien, and then our Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. They're all pretty bullish on the first phase one of the trade agreement um, that maybe will be signed somewhere in the U.S. Uh, I heard there was some chatter, a good location might be Iowa. Um, one, because, you know, it's politically a swing state, but then also it kind of chose a move to placate farmers who have been particularly harmed by this trade war, um, which is dragged on for many months. So that might be a good good location um, on, on the state side of things. But then we also have to consider that while the president definitely wants the deal signed, there's some more tepid members of his administration, whether that be uh, Secretary of State Pompeo or um, Mike Pence, who you know are still very much talking about the political issues that we have with the Chinese right now, whether that be the detention of the Uyghur Muslims out West or whether that be uh, currently what's happening in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, and then if we look at what the deal is, you know, China's going to increase U.S. agriculture products, keep its currency stable, and then open financial services to American firms. And in return, Beijing wants the U.S. to do away with their import tax. Uh, you know, I think that this phase one deal is uh, is definitely good, but I think that getting into a you know a final longer term deal may actually you know cause still some more some more problems there. Uh, the Chinese cast doubts on that right now, I, I think. And then you know moving forward, we're looking at the Trump administration giving licenses to to various companies to be able to have um, you know. Chinese technology. Also, I think one thing to look at is, you know, we're continuing to add uh, Chinese technology companies to our blacklist. And so I think that if that continues to happen, there's still going to be tensions between us. Right. So stay tuned for all this. This is, of course, you've been on this podcast. It's constantly moving or if you've been on any economic podcast over the last year or so, this is a constantly moving target as we try and um, you know, resolve some of our differences we have with the Chinese in terms of, you know, intellectual property and, and some of their trade practices, but then also the need to to kind of get their goods to our market. Um, so, you know, we'll be talking about final locations and final deals and everything moving forward. Uh, one issue we haven't talked about much in a global stage uh, for a while is Brexit, and there's certainly some movement on that. As many of you know that there's going to be elections. Um, so Boris called for a snap election. Uh, so, I mean, the it's there's a couple layers of, of problems, right? So British have a first-past-the-post electoral system. So even if a bigger party gets in uh, under the Conservative Party, under Johnson, if they get a lot of the votes, that doesn't necessarily mean that it will translate into all the House of Commons uh, with the system that the UK has in terms of their, their representatives. Uh, but then, I mean, I even saw this just kind of broke today. Um, haven't really dived too much into it, but there there has been some Russian meddling and um, some of the indications report that old Boris might have known a little bit about it. So that could really, <laughs> really uh, alter alter the election between him and then Jeremy Corman and Labor. And then you have a lot of other parties, you know, separatist parties who they're trying to reach out to, whether that be Jeremy Corman reaching out to the Scottish National Party and uh, and all the very, very complex situation that is Brexit. Yeah, well, I think if you think about it, there usually has only been two main parties in Britain. You had the Conservative Party and then the Labour Party. But now with, with all this, we're actually seeing about four or five major parties. Um, and then also, if you look at previous polls, that they've been wrong before, right? So they, and when the first 2006 referendum came out, they said that the UK would stay in the European Union. And we all know how that turned out. Um, so I think that as we as we look forward to this, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, there there may be a vote where we uh, the UK may actually stay in the European Union, and all of this talk over the past two three years has has been for nothing. And the the polls right now have it about a fifty one to a forty nine split. So I mean, it's definitely going to come down to the wire. Yeah, and and the British a lot of British are going to be faced with pretty much uh, an unpalatable choice, especially if we're talking about a finance guy based out of London because he's going to have to either vote for uh, Boris, who is very pro-Brexit, which, you know, financial institutions out of London um, and surrounding areas clearly are not. They, they didn't vote for Brexit. But then that leaves them as another major candidate, Jeremy Corbyn and, the, Corbyn and the Labor Party, and they certainly don't agree with them on economic policies, especially 
you might see the state rise to levels, you know, pre-Thatcher levels. So they certainly don't want that either. So that's, you know, if you're in finance in London, you have a really tough choice to make. Yeah, and with that, we're kind of closing in on our time. So I'd like to talk about, as always, close the call with, with what we're looking at in the coming weeks. Um, for me in particular, uh, you know, they have a deadline of the, in the U.S. of the 21st to get a lot of this funding passed. If not, we have another potential shutdown. Um, so, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see more about that in terms of the next coming weeks. But, I mean, the last shutdown in January was the longest on record. It certainly makes it difficult for economic data to come in because a lot of these are federal institutions that are now not currently be funded. Uh, and the government, of course, is a major source of, of our GDP. So, I mean, that, that might throw some tumult in the markets in the relatively near future. If, if they don't get uh, a funding agreement in place. Yeah, that's definitely something to look for. What I'm looking for is, you know, Saudi Arabia just came out last week announcing that they are going to do an IPO of their you know, oil company, Saudi Aramco. They're going to list it on the Saudi exchange next month. So what I'm looking for is to see what the valuation is. We've seen that the prince came out and, and gave it a $2 trillion valuation, but we're seeing analysts have a range between about $1.3 and $1.5 trillion. This will be interesting because it would be the world's most profitable enterprise, having a valuation larger than Apple, and then also having you know $111 billion in revenue last year. But also it will be interesting to see what investors think about it because there is a lot of questions, right? I mean, we had the drone strike in September uh, on one of their big plants. So that's something to look out for. Also, there's the question about fossil fuels future as most people are trying to move towards green energy sources. And then also, you know, the investment in Saudi Arabia after there was the you know killing of the of the journalist last year as well. So there's definitely a lot of questions around this IPO. And then also to see if they move on to more mainstream exchanges. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this second podcast. Um, if you haven't subscribed, please do on the podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll, like always, we'll have we'll have the link sent out as well uh, within our PIPA website. Thanks again, and tune in next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wealthfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wealthfest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.